So open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 11, and let's get into the Word tonight. Um, this is just so good. As I, as I keep saying, I could just read this. In fact, when we get to chapter 12, we're probably just going to do a read-through, and then I'll make some comments about it after reading through it. But to get the sense of, of Moses out on the plains of Moab with all the children of Israel scattered there before him. And man, he is just preaching this sermon these are the words, he says, Elaha Devarim, he says. And he begins to get into their, their history and retrospective, and then he starts to make the law relevant. And we're right on the cusp of that. In fact, chapter 12 is where he begins to get into the relevancy of the law, what it means for the people in the land, not just hearing it somewhere out on Sinai. And by the way, that's really significant for us because we learn the laws, right? We, we learn the truths and, and we learn the things in Scripture that God would ask us to do. And usually when we first learn them, we really don't have context for them. We just know this is what he says. But it's as we live life and it's as we then go into his promises that we begin to see how relevant truly his word is. And that's what's happening before us here. In chapter 11, verse 1, Moses says, You shall therefore love the Lord your God and always keep his charge, his statutes, his ordinances, and his commandments. Notice love comes first. If you love me, Jesus says, you will keep my commandments. Moses says it over and over. Love the Lord your God and keep his commandments. Because if you love him, you love serving him. If you love him, you love following him. And so with chapter 11, Moses is going to finish up his introduction to Torah, his introduction to the relevance of the law. And that introduction began all the way back in chapter 4. But then you'll see uh, chapter 12, verse 1 says, These are the statutes and the judgments which the Lord shall, uh, which you shall carefully observe in the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess as long as you live on the earth. And from there he launches into Torah, into the law. Don't go, oh no, law. No, no. He launches into what does this mean when you're in the land? How is this relevant to you? How do you live these laws? And it's very cool. But in chapter 11, he begins by reiterating the heart of the message, you shall love the Lord your God. Remember the key verse? Do you? Oh, yeah, it's the next one up there. That's cheating. It's the next one up there. I mean, Deuteronomy 6.4, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That's the key. That's what Deuteronomy is about. These are words to remember, words of love that Moses is preaching to the people. We get that, and this becomes a favorite book among the 66. You know what my next favorite book is? Joshua. But we'll get there. So... Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 2, Know this day that I am not speaking with your sons who have not known and who have not seen the discipline of the Lord your God, his greatness, his mighty hand, his outstretched arm, and his signs and his works which he did in the midst of Egypt to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and to all his land, and what he did to Pharaoh's army, to his horses and chariots when he made the water of the Red Sea to engulf them while they were pursuing you, and the Lord completely destroyed them, and what he did, it's like Moses can't get enough of what he's saying, and what he did to you in the wilderness until you came to this place, and what he did to Datan and Avaram and the sons, of, the sons of Eliav, the son of Reuben, when the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed them, their households, their tents, and everything that followed them among all Israel, but your own eyes have seen all the great work of the Lord, which he did. Now, did you catch that? What he did, what he did, what he did. He repeats it, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, throughout the thing. You know, you've seen, you're aware of what he did. Now, this is so cool because if you make a comparison, if you go to any of the books of history, the great works of, and documents 
that, that spout all the archival achievements of archaic humanity. Go back and look at that stuff, and all it does is glorify man. Talks about our great works, talks about what we've accomplished. But if you hear this word, you'll realize what the Almighty God has done. And this is absolutely key to our faith. It's why we study the Bible. It's why we look back even 3,500 years to Moses on the plains with the children of Israel. Why would we waste our time with this? Well, it's not a waste because we're looking at what God has done. And for your faith and for mine, this is huge. We don't, we don't look back longing for the glory days. I mean, does anyone really want to take that trek through the wilderness with you know, all the Israelites? Does anyone really want to have to now go into the land and fight for it? We don't look back going, oh, man, I wish you could be part of that. But we look back recognizing all the Lord has accomplished, his greatness, his mighty hand, his outstretched arm. And as we look back and see that, our faith today is solidified. Now, it works in your life, too. If you'll take the time to look back at the faithfulness of God, how he's gotten you from where you were to where you are tonight, right now how he has protected you and provided for you. And I know some would say, I've had a horrible several years. What are you talking about? He's gotten you here, hasn't he? He has been faithful to see you through, hasn't he? Are you breathing? Are you living? Are you standing? Well, you're not. You're sitting. But, but you know what I'm saying. It's what he's done. And the reason we look back in life to what he's done is because it, it, it assures our faith. It builds up our faith. strengthens it. I often date the bridge. Not like going out. But I date the bridge. If you've been here any, any number of years, you know I'll say, hey, we're, we've been here roughly 18 years. It'll be 18 years October. Um, over the years, and I started realizing I was doing this, and I didn't mean to, but, but I'm like, hey, we've been here a year and a half. <laughs> hey, this is our fifth year, or this is our 10th year, or this is 14 years at the bridge. And I found myself doing that, and, and I realized why. It's because I can look back over now 17 and a half years, almost 18, and I see the faithfulness of God. I see what he's done in us and among us. I see the absolutely amazing people, and I'm not just blowing smoke here. I see the amazing people who walk through the doors. The God has said, I want you there. And I'm like, why do we get them? Sometimes I say, why do we get them? But, but not very often. <laughs> we look back and we recognize what God has done. Psalm 111, verse 4, he has made his wonders to be remembered. That's why. He's done all these things that we would remember them, look back to them, and when it gets especially difficult or hard or taxing, we can say, yeah, but, but my God's faithful. I know he is. I've seen it. And if you're having trouble seeing it in your life, you look back at this word. Look at what he's done. Man, just go back to the cross. You don't have to go any further. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. Psalm 111, verse 4. Now, Paul does say in Philippians 3.13, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I love that. We do both. We look back to what lies behind. Not, Paul says, I don't look back to what lies behind. Well, what's he saying? He's talking about his old self. He's talking about his failures. He's talking about the mess that he made of things. And he's also talking about his great works. I don't look back at my stuff at what lies behind. I look forward to his glory. But that's different than looking back at what God has done. From creation to the covenants to the Christ to the cross all the way to the church to present day. We can look back over these things. It builds up faith and it gives us the hope to look forward knowing that he is going to do everything that he's promised. He has so far. Hasn't missed a single one. Lamentations 3.22, and I love this passage because the context is Jeremiah the prophet, probably, we think, sitting on the Mount of Olives watching Jerusalem burn. 
his beloved Jerusalem. The temple is flattened to the ground, smoldering. And Jeremiah says, the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. Remember what we talked about Sunday? I, would, I just bowed down. I just praised. I just worshiped. I just kept silent. But God did what needed to be done. How can we be sure? What he did, what he did, what he did. And that's why I'm convinced that Moses is now taking his time. I mean, we're talking about a 10-chapter introduction. That sounds like, well, that's a lot worse than one of my sermons, so come on. He's just going on and on. And now this is where Moses would say, as he's rounding out chapter 11, now we can get into the teaching. Verse 8, he says, You shall therefore keep every commandment which I am commanding you today, so that, so that you may be strong and go in and possess the land into which you are about to cross to possess it, so that you may prolong your days on the land which the Lord, your, which the Lord swore to your fathers to give to them and to their descendants. So the commandments of God aren't just about pleasing God, and, and yes, they are. Keeping his word, keeping his commandments is very pleasing to him, but that's not what they're simply about. That would be enough, but they're also about possessing his promises, as I keep the commands, I am owning his promises. As I do what he said, I'm believing him for what he's going to do. I'm trusting that when he says, Rick, I need you to do this by his word, okay, Lord, I'll do that because not only is it pleasing to him, but I am taking hold of the life that he's called me to. So we're clinging to that. Now for Israel, the very centerpiece of their obedience, as Moses lays out in this chapter, is the promised land. That's where their obedience is now going to play out, where the relevance of these commands comes into play. J. Vernon McGee put it this way. I like this old quote. I believe in the grace of God. I preach the grace of God. We are saved by grace. We're kept by grace. We grow by the grace of God. We are going to get into heaven by the grace of God. And when we've been there 10,000 years, it will still be by the grace of God. But my friend... There are great spiritual blessings today which you are going to miss if you are not obedient to God. And that's the balance of grace. Grace does it all for us, but the blessing comes of possessing his promises as I obey him, as I do the things that he's asked me to do. Uh, Cheryl and I are reading right now. You're going to think this is weird, but that's okay. I told you, I tell you the weird stuff and the dumb stuff. But we're reading Little Town on the Prairie. This is, we we kind of started this years and years ago, and, and uh, Cheryl... She'll just kind of late at night, lights out. I'm lying there. I'm just about dozed off. And she'll go, will you read to me? <laughs> sure. <laughs> so I read. It wakes me right up. Cheryl, you know, over there passed out cold. So we're reading Little, little Town on the Prairie right now. And it's just, it's just so heartwarming. And I love going back to the simplicity of that. And, and I came to this part last night. And I had to keep reading. So I'm going to have to go over it again for you tonight, Cheryl. But... I'm reading Little Town on the Prairie, and it's, it's the scene where Laura Ingalls Wilder and her sister Carrie and Pa go into town on the 4th of July, Independence Day. So they leave their homestead, they come into town, and everybody gathers in the town square. It's after the long, hard winter, which is a horrible book, but they're there in the town square, and they celebrate Independence Day by the reading of the Declaration of Independence. And I'm like, wow, how far have we come from that? 
And everybody's standing around, and, and Laura describes, she says, I'm, I'm listening to this man read out the declaration, and much of it's right there in the book, repeated as someone's speaking it. And she says, something hit me. She goes, I, I realized something about freedom. And that God really did make us to be free, but then that means the responsibility for the freedom is on me. She says, there's coming a day when Paul and Ma aren't gonna tell me what to do anymore. I'm free to make my own decisions, and I gotta make right ones. She says, and this is a quote straight from the book, God's law is the only thing that gives you the right to be free. Wow, I read that and went, that'll preach, so I put it in my notes. <laughs> David put it this way, Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. Why? Restores the soul. Testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. That's this word. That's what he's calling us to obey. And as we obey, it is not a burdensome thing, as John writes. No, it is life and freedom and happiness and promises. And so he continues. It's a land, verse 9, flowing with milk and honey. For the land into which you are entering to possess it is not like the land of Egypt from which you came, where you used to sow your seed and water it with your foot like a vegetable garden. Okay, whoa, whoa. I'm going to need a ruling on this verse. You used to water it with your foot. How many of you people water your plants and your gardens with your feet? Well, they did in Egypt. It was the only way to do it. You see, first of all, understand Egypt is always a picture of what, Bible students? The world. So when you read of Egypt, especially in the Hebrew scriptures, what you're getting is a contrast of the world. You always go down to Egypt. You always go up to Jerusalem. So Egypt's a picture of the world. So keep that in mind. And the fruit of this land of Egypt came by hard labor. It was the only way to get it. Now, Egypt was a very green country because of the Nile flowing straight through it. But the thing was, you had to figure out how to get the water of the Nile over to the crops. And the way they would do that was by means of a foot pump. You had to pump that water. You know, nowadays we've got gym apparatus to, to work on our thighs and our legs, but then it was the foot pump. And they would get out there and pump and pump and pump. Can you even imagine? Talk about a treadmill. In fact, some of your Bibles may even say, say treadmill is, is an optional uh, definition of that uh, with your foot. It's probably talking about, they say, a treadmill. It's more likely it was actually a foot pump where they would pump that stuff to get the water out of the Nile to irrigate the land. And think about that. That's life without promise. That is a life without Jesus. That is a life in the world, the daily grind, the drudgery of sweat equity, working hard, building up for what? Why? So you can get up and do it again? And then you go through work and you get the end of the work week and it's Friday you know, and, and then you got your weekend off, but why? So you can go right back and do it again, and it's day after day, and it's hard work, but man, I'm working for retirement. Great, when you're retired, you're not gonna have the energy to do all the things you wanted to do when you get there. <laughs> what a waste. I think life should start, I think we should retire in our 20s. Yes. <laughs> Let's retire. Let's take 10, 20 years and just have a great time while we have the energy to do it. Then when we get old, let's go to work. <laughs> I think that would be ideal. But see, that's the picture. The picture of the world. Egypt is the foot pump. That's how you, you get anything out of this land. You gotta pump that water, and that's life without promise. Solomon recognized that, Ecclesiastes 12, verse six. Remember your creator 
before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed and the pitcher by the well is shattered and the wheel at the cistern is crushed. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanities. I'm like, if he's a preacher, he's a bummer preacher. I like Moses better. But it's absolutely true. Work, life, living without the promises of God, why? You work till you retire till you die. That's a foot pump. Verse 11, but the land into which you are about to cross to possess it, watch the difference, a land of hills and valleys drinks water from the rain of heaven, a land for which the Lord your God cares. The eyes of the Lord your God are always on it. By the way, that's why I like going there. The first time we went to Israel, uh, I remember um, one, of our, one of our tour members traveling, um, she said, she was on the bus and she goes, I, I, I got this just this picture in my mind of God smiling above us today. And I thought, that's, that's good, because the eyes of the Lord are always on this land. Even if you're in a tour bus, he's got you. And he says, from the beginning, even to the end of the year, it shall come about if you listen obediently to my commandments, which I am commanding you today, to love the Lord your God. There it is again. And to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, that he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early and late rain, that you may gather in your grain and your new wine and your oil. He'll give grass for your fields, for your cattle, and you will eat and be satisfied. Beware that your hearts are not deceived and that you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them. The idea is for provision because that's what pagans would do. They would offer sacrifices and worship their gods to be provided for even to the horrific idea of offering a baby to Molech, the sacrifice so that their work would succeed. That was the idea behind it. It wasn't just cruelty. Oh, it was horribly cruel and brutal. But it, the purpose was so, because I got things to do, which is not unlike abortion today. I got things to do. And so they would sacrifice infants so that their work would succeed, so that their crops would grow, so that their vines would bear fruit. God says, don't do it that way. Or verse 17, the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, for he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the ground will not yield its fruit and you will perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. Totally different than Egypt. Egypt had the rushing, gushing Nile and all they had to do was get the Nile water out into the crops, but it was work. Israel has the Jordan. Have you seen the Jordan? Most spots, you can jump across it. It is not a big river. Everybody, oh, the Jordan River. It's big in flood stage, and we'll get there when Joshua and the people cross it. They were crossing probably at flood stage, and so it can be quite wide at that point. But most of the time, first time we saw the Jordan, in the tour bus, we go across this little bridge, and the tour guide goes, hey, look out your windows. Guess what you're seeing? And we all looked out and went, a creek. <laughs> I'm from the Northwest, baby. That ain't no river. <laughs> Jordan River. And that's what Israel has. That doesn't feed the land. You can't pump enough water out of that to, to feed the crops and, 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 and work for the land. Israel depends to this day on rain. They depend on the God of heaven to bring the rains of heaven. That's a, see, here's the picture. Israel depending on the rains of God. Egypt working your foot off to get your crops watered. It's a completely different picture. The Sea of Galilee in Israel today is a great big freshwater reservoir. That's what they, they use it for. It's a natural sea, but it's there to, to pump water then out to the needs of the people. And when that 
Water table gets low, which happens often in Israel in years of drought. It's, it's dangerous. Sometimes I'll watch in the news, where's the Sea of Galilee right now? Okay, good. It's, it's in a good place because that's where they get their water from as the rains come and fill it up. The early rains typically come in the autumn. You need to get this, this right because it's, it's got some biblical implications. The early rains come in the autumn. Just as the calendar year, um, at least the civic calendar year for Israel, starts on Tishri the 1st. Tishri the 1st, where, it, it, and this year it's September the 6th, Yom Teruah, I won't be here, but Jake has got the task of, of doing the teaching. It's still going to be a great night, and you guys, you're going to love this. We have these little shofars for the kids this year. They're not like the blue plastic things. I've never seen a blue shofar until last year when we bought the plastic ones. Ram's horn, the ones we have this year, they're still about that big. They're still plastic, but they look like little ram's horns. Pretty cool. So anyway, we're going to do Yom Teruah, Tishri the first. That's the autumn. That's the beginning. And that's when the early rains come on the land. The late rains always come in the springtime. And there's something wonderfully prophetic here. Let me just read this to you. Hosea chapter 6, verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord. This is the voice of the people of Israel, the remnant of faithful Israel saying, Come, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn, but he will heal us. He has wounded, but he will bandage us. I love this. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day. And if a day is as a thousand years to the Lord, he will, he will revive us after 2,000 years, perhaps. He will raise us up on the third day for the millennial kingdom, perhaps, that we may live before him. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, which if you're an Israeli, you know what you're talking about. He will come to us like the rain. In years of drought, when the clouds form and the rain starts to fall, it is reason for celebration. Oh, the rains are here. So the Lord will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain, watering the earth. Jesus will come like the spring rain. And then in Joel chapter 2, Joel chapter 2, verse 23, it says, Rejoice, O sons of Zion. Be glad in the Lord your God, for he has given you the early rain for your vindication. And he has poured down for you the rain, the early and latter rain, as before, Joel chapter 2, verse 28, and it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions, even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And you know what that's talking about. If you've read Acts chapter 2, you know that Peter grabs hold of that prophecy of Joel, chapter 2, verse 28, and he explains that's what's going on here. That's what's happening here. That's amazing. Why? Because it was springtime. And it was in the springtime that Jesus died and he was raised. And 10 days after his ascension on Shavuot, Pentecost, the Lord rained down his spirit, poured out his spirit. So you can know and understand that the early and late rains talked about in Scripture are a picture of the Holy Spirit. The water, the living water, but this is water that comes down from heaven. This is water that is needed for life. Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter said, Repent, each of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise was for you and your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Now, Egypt says, pump up the power. God says, trust in me, and I will make it rain. I will send the rain. We talked a little bit on Sunday about the soulish Christian, that we all are created 
body, soul, and spirit. And that the soulish Christian is, is the one who's just really focused on methodologies and strategies and, and coming up with a plan and trying to think through the problems of life. That, that's soulish Christianity rather than the spiritual Christian who is prayerful and waiting on the Lord and listening to him. And please understand this. I, I said this to our staff today. It is not a difference of righteousness. We get this all the time. In fact, there are people who are afraid of the baptism of the Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit himself or the works and the gifts of the Holy Spirit or the manifestations of the spiritual gifts. People will say, no, 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 I, I don't want any of that because that's those crazy Pentecostals like Les. <laughs> that's fine for him. It's okay for Donna. She's got to put up with them every day, but, but, but not for me, you know? And, and part of the put, put off of that, part of people saying, I, oh, I don't want that Holy Spirit stuff, is because they've got it in their minds, and, and it's for a whole bunch of reasons. They've got it in their minds that you Holy Spirit people think you're more righteous than we are. See, I grew up as the we are. I grew up as, you know, as the guy going, ah, you know, I didn't really, I didn't get a lot of teaching on the Holy Spirit. It was avoided. And so I grew up in that place, and I felt judged by those crazy Pentecostals. So I judged them right back. <laughs> But the problem is it has nothing to do with righteousness. Do you understand that? That if you are a flaming Pentecostal or if you're a complete cessationist, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you are saved by the blood of Jesus and you are equally righteous. And this is important. It's really important to get this. The soulish Christian is exactly as righteous as the spiritual Christian because both are saved by the blood of Christ. That's where our righteousness comes from. Well, then so I'm good to go. I didn't say that. The problem is, it's not a righteousness issue. It's not a standing issue, because again, that is all by grace, but it is the difference in your Christian life between working and walking, between striving and resting. It is the difference for a follower of Jesus between fear and faith, between trusting self to figure it out, and I'm telling you, I have been there more times than I can count, or trusting God to show up in his timing. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. See, that's the thing. We've got the word that we can examine everything with. We don't have to worry about getting nutty or crazy. We just say, what does the Bible say? Is it biblical? Good, let's go. Let's do that. Is it unbiblical? Let's not do that. It's very simply, simple to test these things. He says, examine everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil, of course. Then Paul says this, 1 Thessalonians 5.23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you, I love this, entirely. And then he explains, may your spirit and your soul and your body be preserved complete. Spirit, soul, body. You know what? God wants to be at work in all three aspects of your life. All three. Some of us stop at soul. That's enough, Lord. We every now and then dip our toe in spirit, but what we're really more comfortable here. And you know what? I, I can't make you do anything different. And you can walk before the Lord, trust in Jesus, and by his grace be saved. But you're missing something. You're not missing righteousness. You're not missing standing before the Lord. But you're missing the peace. In fact, when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, all those things, it's not that you can't taste those or experience those, but wouldn't you rather just live in them? Wouldn't you rather that be your experience? May your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 18, back in chapter 11. 
Verse 18, I'm going to try and give Moses a run for his money tonight. Verse 18, you shall therefore impress these words of mine on your heart and on your soul. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. (laughs) They shall be as frontals on your forehead, and you shall teach them to your sons, talking of them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And of course, that's where we get the phylacteries and the tephilim, the the little leather boxes. And by the way, the two primary verses that that Jews, even today, if if they have phylactery boxes wrapped on their foreheads, And in Israel, that's kind of funny because some of those boxes are huge. These guys have got to have personal chiropractors just to carry those things around. And and, uh, they'll be strapped on the right arm, little leather boxes. The verses that are in those boxes tend to be one of two verses. Just if you're curious, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, the Shema, hear, O Israel. And Deuteronomy 11, verse 1, you shall therefore love the Lord your God always and keep his his charge, his statutes, his ordinances, and his commandments. So those go into the, the phylacteries, the tephilim. On the doorposts, we've talked about those. Those are little, they're called mezuzahs, and they literally nail into the doorposts. You'll see them all over Israel, and in every single hotel room, every room has a mezuzah with a little verse tucked into it. That's cool. You know, that's fine. But, but that's not what Moses really is talking about. He's preaching to the heart. Get this in your heart. Get this in your mind. Pour over these things. Know these things. Live these things out. In verse 21, he says, So that your days and the days of your sons may be multiplied on the land, which the Lord swore to your fathers to give them, as long as the heavens remain above the earth. For if you are careful to keep all this commandment, which I'm commanding you to do, to love the Lord your God, that's always first, to walk in all his ways and hold fast to him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations from before you. And you will dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. That's not a treadmill. That's just walking with the Lord. That's not a foot pump. That's trusting in the early and the latter rains. Your border will be, God says, or Moses says, from the wilderness to Lebanon, from the river, the river Euphrates, as far as the Western Sea. It's this huge amount of land. And so Moses is saying, look, forget about the foot pumps of Egypt. Get off the treadmill and walk by faith in the Lord. Love the Lord your God and let these things be on your heart and on your soul. Walking with God. Walking with God. Not rushing, not racing. Walking. Genesis 5:24. Enoch walked with God. And he was not, for God took him. He just walked. Genesis 6, 9, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Genesis 13, 17, God says to Abram, Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. I'm so glad that God didn't wait until there was, you know, like an Israeli autobahn. Race throughout the land, and whatever you see, I'll give to you. No, walk it, Abram. Spend your life here. This is your promise. Matthew chapter 9, verse 5. Think about what Jesus did. This is so cool. He's in the house. The lame man is lowered by a pallet through the ceiling on the floor right there before Jesus. And he says, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk. Hey, there's a parallel here to spiritual living. He says, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. Walk, just walk with me. Mark chapter 6, verse 48 seeing them straining at the oars for the wind was against them at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. I love that. Jesus walks everywhere, even on the water. 
In Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, Paul says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in him. Love the Lord your God. Walk with Jesus. And there will be grace in every place that the sole of your foot treads. Verse 25. No man will be able to stand before you. See how it works for me? You're all seated. <laughs> no man will be able to stand before you. The Lord your God will lay the dread of you and the fear of you on all the land on which you set foot, doing what? Walking, as he has spoken to you. Man, we're walking in the rain. That, that, that's the picture here. Walking in, I'm not singing in the rain. I'm not some fool like Gene Kelly. I'm walking in the rain. As the Lord rains down his spirit, so I walk with him. That's such a beautiful picture. Verse 26, see, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, which I am commanding you today. And the curse, if you do not listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way which I am commanding you today by following other gods which you have not known. You need to understand this whole blessing and curse idea. This is part of the Mosaic Covenant. And the reason God is doing this is for you and for me. He's painting a picture for the world with his chosen people, Israel, to say, look, here's the deal. If you receive my word, if you do my word and live by my word, you're going to be blessed. And if you don't, your life is going to be a curse. And he actually literally did that with Israel so he could show us here in 2021, that's how it works. Keep the commandments. Do what God asked me to do. They're not burdensome. Just walk in the rain. He continues to say it shall come about. Verse 29, when the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it, that you shall place the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. Are they not across the Jordan, west of the way toward the sunset in the land of the Canaanites who live in the Arabah, opposite Gilgal, beside the Oaks of Moray? For you are about to cross the Jordan and go in to possess the land which the Lord your God has given you, and you shall possess it and live in it, and you shall be careful to do all the statutes and the judgments which I am setting before you today. And so he's now leading them to look into the land. You're going in. So let's make this relevant. As you go in, there's blessing for you and there's cursing, depending on how you respond to the Lord here. You're going into the land. Blessing is the word barakah, baruch. Barakah, which means praise or prosperity or gift. But it also has, and this is an interesting translation, but, but it has the sense of a blessing formula. There's blessing for you. There's a formula here for being blessed, Moses is saying. And so that's how that word barakah is used throughout the Hebrew scriptures. One place is very interesting. There's a different translation of it in Isaiah 22, verses 9 and 11. And you can just note this. I just found this fascinating to me. The word barakah is there, but it's translated pool. Pool, like a pool of water. And I, I thought about that. Why, why is barakah blessing? They use the word barakah. And it's obvious in the context of what Isaiah is saying. He's talking about a pool, but he refers to it as a barakah. Why? Because in Israel, a pool of water is a blessing. It's a major blessing. And it's a reminder that Proverbs 10.22, it is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich. And he adds no sorrow or he adds no strenuous work to it. You don't receive the blessing of the Lord by foot pumping. Okay, the pools of blessing that the Lord wants to pour out, it comes down like the rains of heaven. So Moses says, when you come into the land, there's blessing for you. Just do what the Lord says. Love God and let the commandments flow out of the love. Just do that. Blessing is for you. But there's also cursing for you. Kalalah. So Barakah is blessing. 
Kalalah is curse. And a Kalalah is a thing despised. A thing despised, like black licorice. I just, <laughs> it's Kalalah for me. <laughs> Some of you love black licorice. I get it. We're, you know, the world's filled with all kinds. But you might ask the question, if we look at this, all of a sudden Moses calls out these mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. What do these have to do with blessing and cursing? And you'll find that out when we get to Deuteronomy 27 and 28. And it's a really cool ceremony that Moses sets up where when they go into the land, half of the tribes of Israel are going to stand on Mount Gerizim, Mount of Blessing. And then half of the tribes of Israel are going to stand on Mount Ebal, Mount of Cursing. And then Joshua, the Levites, and the leaders of Israel will stand in the valley in the middle, and they'll start reading. And it's chapter 27 and 28. They will read out blessing. And every time they read a blessing, all of Israel on Mount Gerizim says, Amen, so be it. And then when they read out the curses, if they don't follow the Lord, all the tribes on Mount Ebal, they shout out, Amen, so be it. I'd rather be Team Gerizim than Club Ebal. And wouldn't you rather? Be? I'd rather be on the Blessing Mountain. Yeah, the reason the blessings, hallelujah, amen, yes, let's get blessed. As opposed to, I get to, you know, I feel sorry for the, the tribes that were chosen to be on Mount Ebal. Mount of cursing. If you don't do this, you're despised. Amen. So be it. Hallelujah. <laughs> you know what? The people answered for all Israel, regardless of what mountain they were on. The, the point of the exercise wasn't to say these are the cursed tribes and these are the blessed tribes. They would all be blessed if they followed the Lord. They would all be cursed if they rejected the Lord. And so something happened on Mount Ebal that didn't happen on Mount Gerizim. This is fascinating to me. Because we would say, I, I read this and I go, yeah, I want to be on Mount Gerizim. That sounds like the party mountain right there, the blessing mountain. But on Mount Ebal, Joshua chapter 8, verse 30 tells us something. Joshua built an altar the God, to the God of Israel in Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded to the sons of Israel, it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no man had wielded an iron tool. And on Mount Ebal, get this, they offered burnt offerings to the Lord and they sacrificed peace offerings. That's how it works. It is on the Mount of the Curse that the altar is built. On the Mount of the Curse, the altar of sacrifice you could say, think about this picture between Mount Gerizim. Cheryl and I have been up on the top of Mount Gerizim. We've seen that valley that dips down below. It's, it's pretty steep. And the Mount Ebal is right across. You could shout across and hear each other from one, one mount to the other. And so they're on Mount Gerizim blessing. Mount Ebal curses. But on Mount Ebal, there's that altar. And you could almost get a picture of our Joshua, Jesus, standing in the middle. See, he already was on the Mount of the Curse at the altar, not Mount Ebal, Mount Golgotha, Calvary. And he was on the altar of the cross so that he could call out to us. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to all the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So standing in the middle, the Lord is saying, I got blessing for you. He stood on Mount Ebal. He stood at the altar. He was hung upon the cross 2,000 years ago. You know what? When he comes back, he's coming back to the Mount of Blessing. Not Gerizim, but all of it. The Bible says marvelously he's coming back to all of it. When the blessing of the kingdom comes rushing into this world and we finally receive what we have all been longing for and waiting for to see King Jesus on the throne in Jerusalem 
How marvelous. Zechariah chapter 14 is one of my favorite passages, so I just have to read it to you. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half the mountain will move toward the north and the other half will move toward the south, and you will flee by the valley of my mountains. For the valley of the mountains will reach to Uzzel. Yes, you'll flee like you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. And you Bible students know who all those holy ones are. And you're sitting here right now. I, this just is one of my favorite realities in all scripture. The rapture's fantastic. But man, riding those white horses back with him, Revelation 19 describes, returning with him, all the holy ones with him, Translation of holy ones, hagios, is what? Saints. It's the saints. So we come back with him as he comes to the mount, and the blessing begins to flow as we all flow into the kingdom with him. It says, in that day there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. It will be a unique day, <laughs> yeah, which is known to the Lord neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, the other half toward the western sea, that is to the Dead Sea and to the Med Sea, and it will be in summer as well as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one, and we're not going to have, oh, I can't say it. Yeah, let me just have a sip of water. God will be king. And the choices and the authority will be perfect. We will not have an Afghanistan situation in the kingdom. There, I said it. God will be the only one. Absolutely perfect in everything that Jesus does as he rules and reigns out of Jerusalem. Man, what a day that will be. Chapter 12. Chapter 12, like I said, I'm, I'm just going to, Moses here begins to expound the law. As he said he was going to do back in chapter 1, verse 5. It says he undertook to expound the law. You may recall the word expound, but air also means to inscribe. And because this is all about getting the law on the heart, the idea is let's inscribe the law on our hearts, not just on tablets of stone, but on hearts of flesh. So he's expounding it. And that's what begins with chapter 12. And the commandments now he begins to apply. So one other thing before I read through chapter 12, remember this, that back in chapter 5, he repeated the Ten Commandments. Remember that? And I told you at the time, he was going to then take the Ten Commandments and start making application, picking up in chapter 12. And so tonight, what we'll see here as we read through it, just watch, he's going to make application of the first three commandments. He's going to apply them. Deuteronomy 5, 7, you shall, not have, you shall have no other gods before me. Second, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. And third, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So those three, first three commandments, now listen to how he applies them. I love this. These are the statutes and the judgments which you shall carefully observe in the land, which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess as long as you live on the earth. How long is the, uh, the title deed to the land of Israel given to the children of Israel? Yeah, I, I don't see anywhere in Scripture that says that's been revoked. He's given it to Israel. It belongs to Israel. It will belong to Israel as a people in the millennial kingdom. Replacement theology just falls apart if you just read the Bible. The church does not replace Israel. God's got a wonderful plan for us. 
but we come alongside Israel. We get to serve and love the people of Israel. God is going to bring the remnant of Israel by faith in Jesus into the kingdom, into the land that has been given to them to possess as long as they live on the earth. Verse 2, you shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, burn their asherim with fire, cut down the engraved images of their gods, and obliterate their name from that place. You shall not act like this toward the Lord your God. You shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God will choose from all your tribes to establish his name there for his dwelling, and there you shall come. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any graven images. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Why? When you come into the land, there's going to be a place for his name. Read on. There you shall bring your burnt offerings, sacrifices, tithes, the contribution of your hand, your votive offerings, your free will offerings, the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. There also you and your household shall eat before the Lord your God and rejoice in all your undertakings in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not do at all what we are doing here today, every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. Interesting, that phrase is used throughout the book of Judges. When there was no king over Israel and every man did what was right in his own eyes. And that book talks about a complete disaster in the land. For you have not as yet come to the resting place and the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you. When you cross the Jordan and live in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all your enemies around you so you live in security, then it shall come about that the place in which the Lord your God will choose for his name to dwell... There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, sacrifices, tithes, the contribution of your hand, all your choice votive offerings, that's the offerings that they make by a vow, which you will vow to the Lord, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male and female servants, the Levi who's within your gates, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Be careful that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every place you see. Now the Bible adds cultic because the idea was the pagans just offered anywhere. All over the land. You know, there were the high places and there were the pagan temples and wherever you felt like offering, you just offered wherever. And that was a cultic way of offering to the Lord. But in the place which the Lord chooses in one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings. There you shall do all I command you. However, you may slaughter and eat meat within any of your gates, whatever you desire, according to the blessing which the Lord your God, he has given you, the unclean and the clean may eat of it as of the gazelle and the deer. In other words, you can have it in and out and, you know, five guys in your towns. That's cool. So already I'm liking this land. He says, only you shall not eat the blood. You are to pour it out on the ground like water. This is so serious to God. Why is it so serious to God? Because the life is in the blood, right? And really because every last drop of his son's blood was going to be poured out on the ground. God gave this, this, this picture of blood is so serious. It's so powerful that even in the very creation of the human body, God said, I'm going to make blood pump through this body so that when my son offers his blood, they'll get it. They will understand how valuable they are to me. That life is valuable to me. So pour out the blood on the ground. Do not eat the blood. I, I was thinking the other day, um, Scottish people, they got some gross food. You think black licorice is bad? Haggis. Blood sausage. You know, and the whole idea that, that people kind of, they think, well, we don't do that type of thing today. I, you know, if you're eating, if you like your steak rare and there's blood pooled on the plate, I'm thinking, <laughs> think about what you're eating there. 
But he says, pour it out on the ground. You're not allowed to eat within your gates the tithe of your grain or the new wine or oil. That's interesting. How many of us eat the tithe? How many of us say, look, Lord, I know, I know you said there's a, there's a pattern here that you've placed in Scripture. And I'm not talking legalistically, but God said, hey, bring the whole, sty- the whole tithe into my storehouse. See if I won't bless you. You tithe to me and trust me and test me in this, he says, Malachi chapter 3, and, and see if I don't pour out, open up the windows of heaven and take care of you. And so we go, oh, that, that's really cool. That's a nice idea, but I'm under grace. You know what grace has nothing to do with tithing? The two are, yeah, you're under grace, fantastic. You're saved by grace. Yeah, you're not saved by tithing. The Bible never says that. What have we been talking about about the commandments? Love the Lord your God and obey him. And that obedience can be found in all kinds of ways, and I think tithing is one of them. And that's as my personal opinion. Not going to go to hell if you don't tithe. But honestly, how many of us say, here's 100% of my income. God said I could trust him with 10% and see what happens, or I can eat my tithe. How many of us do that? This month, things are a little tight, so I'm only going to give 5%. This month, boy, I just don't know if we can really afford it. I'm going to give 1% because I need the rest. Or this month, I'm going to give my tithe to something else. And this, this is not about drumming up money for the church. Okay? I, I love to be able to tell you this. It's not about drumming up money for the church because God has continued to bless with faithfulness. And all the way through COVID, it, it's been amazing to watch the faithful giving of this fellowship. But this idea of tithing, this is between you and God. This is a faith issue. And we can eat half the tithe, but we have an example here where God says, don't eat within the gates the tithe of your grain or the new wine or oil or the firstborn of your herd or flock or any of your votive offerings which you vow or your free will offerings or the contribution of your hand. If you're going to give it to the Lord, give it to the Lord. Don't eat it behind closed doors just because you don't think you're going to make it through the month. Is God sufficient to see us through or not? Verse 18, but you shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place which the Lord your God will choose. There it is again, this place. You and your son and your daughter and your male and your female servants and the Levite who is within your gates. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all your undertakings. Those who think the Old Testament is a bummer haven't read that verse. God's like, I want you to do this so you can have celebration and joy. That's the whole idea. He gave Israel seven feasts and only one of them is matzah bread. All the rest are about, it's just all about celebration. I want my people to party righteously. That's the heart of God. And that's what we see throughout the Old Testament scriptures. So you, so you can rejoice before the Lord your God. Verse 19, be careful that you do not forsake the Levite as long as you live in your land. When the Lord your God extends your borders, he has promised you, and you say, I will eat meat because you desire to eat meat, then you may eat meat wherever you desire or whatever you desire. If the place which the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far from you, then you may slaughter of your herd and flock which the Lord has given you. And as I have commanded you, you may eat within your gates whatever you desire. You can have the meat of your flock. It's not not a problem, he says. Just as a gazelle or a deer is eaten, and so you will eat it. The unclean and the clean alike may eat of it. So it's not a big deal. Just eat your meat. That's fine. Only be sure not to eat the blood. For again, he says, the blood is the life. You shall not eat the life with the flesh. You shall not eat it. You shall pour it out on the ground like water. You shall not eat it so that it may be well with you and your sons after you, for you will be doing what is right in the sight of the Lord. Did they understand the no blood prescription? I guarantee, no. There's no reason for them not to eat blood except that God said, don't do it. And sometimes that just needs to be enough. I don't know why, Lord. Yeah, but it doesn't matter if you know why. 
Why does God tell us to get baptized? It doesn't matter. He told us to. Yeah, yeah, but I don't want to do that because that, then I'm saying that that's what saves me. No, you're not. You're just doing what God said to do. With all these things, obedience is key. He says in verse 26, only your holy things which you may have and your votive offerings you shall take and go to the place which the Lord chooses. And you shall offer your burnt offerings, the flesh and the blood, on the altar of the Lord your God, and the blood of your sacrifices shall be poured out on the altar of the Lord your God, and you shall eat the flesh. And we've talked about all the sacrifices through our study through Leviticus, so you can go back and think those through if you'd like to. Be careful to listen to all these words, Moses says, which I command you so that it may be well with you and your sons after you forever, for you will be doing what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. When the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you are going in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, beware that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed before you, so that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, how do these nations serve their gods that I may do likewise? How do these guys do their crops? How do these guys, there's, there's got to be another way. You know, there's got to be a lot of rivers that lead to the sea. And God's like, no, there's one. My way or the highway. You shall not behave thus toward the Lord your God. For every abominable act which the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to nor take away from it. Okay, so listen up. The thrust of the whole chapter is Moses declaring the name of God will be central to the land of Israel. The name of God is the focal point. Is his name central in your life? Believe me when I say that anytime I ask you a question like that personally, is his name central in your life, I've been asking myself the same thing. So I'm not sitting up here like the judge. Is God's name central in my life? Throughout the day, throughout the week, am I thinking about Jesus? Is he the focal point of my decisions in business, at work, at home with family, out with my friends? Do I make my choices based on the centrality of the name of Jesus in my life? It's a big deal. And that's the whole point of chapter 12. It's, it's so much the point that that's why I just read through it. This is the issue. The centrality of the name of God. Now listen to this. In ancient cultures, what people would do you go in and you'd conquer another people. So Israel's about to go in and conquer. And when you conquered that land, then you would just kind of pick up where they left off. What do you mean? If they had a pagan temple, take out their idols and put in yours. If they had a grove of trees for a heathen worship, remove all of their asherim and put in yours. And just pick up the thing, just use their stuff and turn right around and do it. Not so with the Lord. Remember, as the chapter began, they were to obliterate all other names of God or, or names of gods. Obliterate it. Remove it completely from the land. They were not to serve Yahweh in the same way that the pagan gods had been served. And they were to seek the Lord in the one place where he would establish his name. That one place. There have only been two. In all history, both in the land of Israel, two places where God established his name. And the first was Shiloh. Shiloh in the mountains of Judea. Shiloh is such a cool place, interesting place. The tabernacle, when they came into the land after crossing the Jordan, the tabernacle rested there on this flat table land in Shiloh for the first 369 years. 
that the people were in the land. That was the place of his name. That's where they were to go for the sacrifices. That's where they were to show up for the feasts and festivals. They went to Shiloh. Samuel was prophet at Shiloh. A lot of significant things happened that I don't have time to go into tonight happened there at Shiloh. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 12, the Lord says, Go now to my place which was in Shiloh, where I made my name to dwell at the first. This is important. Shiloh means rest. Rest. It's where the tabernacle rested. And like I said, there is, and we are, this is one of those spots in Israel that's high certainty that it's the right spot. When you travel around Israel, you know, depending on the guides you get, we have a good one, but you can get guides who just want to drum up business and get all emotional, and they'll tell you everything is what it's not, and they'll go laugh with their friends. Roni doesn't do that. He's straight with us. Shiloh, the, the location at Shiloh, there's this flat, rectangular land, and it's in the midst of all these hills everywhere else. It's about the only place that the tabernacle possibly could have rested. And what's interesting is archaeologically at both ends of this rectangle that, by the way, size-wise is perfect for the tabernacle. Both ends, there are, uh, they found archaeologically dugouts, storage areas. What for? For all the implements of the tabernacle. So it's a really cool place to go and to, and to see. And if you did an aerial flyover, and this is what I love, I have a poster of this up in my office. If you did an aerial flyover of Shiloh, if you looked down and looked at the shape of the mountains there at Shiloh, what you would see very clearly is the letter Shin in Hebrew. The Hebrew letter Shin, it's like it's written on the land itself. And you don't need someone to point it out even. You just fly over, oh, there, yeah, that looks like a letter Shin. Why does that matter? That's the Hebrew letter that is always assigned to Shem, Hashem, the name of God. God said, in the place where I will put my name. And so it's as if God even created into the region of Shiloh the letter Shin to express my name is here. This is where I'm putting my name. My name is to be central to the land. This is where I want you to come. But you know the other place of his name, Yerushalayim, Jerusalem. Shiloh means rest. Jerusalem means literally, note this, literally it means teaching of peace. Teaching of peace. Jerusalem. First mention of Jerusalem is Genesis 14, 18. You might remember this, when Abram met and he honors, he worships Melchizedek, whose name means king of righteousness. And it says that Melchizedek is king of Shalim, Yerushalayim. He's king of Jerusalem. That's the first time we see it in the Bible. And then Joshua conquers the city during Israel's conquest of the land, Joshua chapter 10. You'll see Jerusalem fall. But, but Joshua leaves it in the control of the Jebusites. Why would you do that? That doesn't make sense. You conquer the city. Take the city, you know? Uh, that's what Hefe told El Guapo in Three Amigos. You want the horse, you take the horse. Right? So conquer the city, take the city, Joshua, but he doesn't. He leaves it to the Jebusites. They're cool. Okay, you guys can stay there and, and no problem. David retook it. He reconquers Jerusalem, and he makes Jerusalem Israel's capital approximately 1,000 B.C. But it's interesting to me, they keep doing that. They keep conquering and then handing it over. And the exact same thing happened on the second day of the Six-Day War in 1967. Do you know the story? Israel took the Temple Mount for the first time since A.D. 70. There were IDF soldiers on the Temple Mount weeping like little babies because they were back on the Temple Mount after all 1,800 and however many years since, since they had even had any access to it, and now they're on it. They're standing on it. They conquered it. 
And, and uh, Colonel uh, Mordecai Gurr, he announced, the Temple Mount is in our hands. Man, that went out and that electrified the Israeli Defense Force in the Six-Day War, which is part of the reason why the Six-Day War was over in six days. They had the Temple Mount again. JewishVirtualLibrary.org, which, by the way, that's a great source. You might want to note that, JewishVirtualLibrary.org. You can find out all kinds of things about Judaism and Jewish faith and, and the background to, to the scriptures. So they say, in liberating the Temple Mount, quote, the Jewish people reclaimed control over the area for the first time since the destruction of the Second Temple, 70 AD. Initially, they write, the chief rabbi of the IDF, Shlomo Gorin. I'd love to have a friend named Shlomo. Shlomo, that, by the way, that's Solomon. We transliterate that Solomon. He was not King Solomon. He was King Shlomo. But Shlomo Gorin, who had been with the troops and blew the shofar on the Temple Mount, set up a synagogue and an office there that day on the Temple Mount. Defense Minister Moshe Dayan, who they called the one-eyed general because he always wore that eye patch, he said, this compound was our Temple Mount. Here stood our temple during ancient time. It would be inconceivable for Jews not to be able to freely visit this holy place now that Jerusalem is under our rule. And they rejoiced and they shouted and there were plans to blow up the Dome of the Rock Mosque. Shlomo Gorin was making those plans with the soldiers who were there. It's even said there's one story about an Israeli plane that was flying over and kept circling. He, he was not under the authority of, of the IDF, but he was kind of on his own, a, a Jewish pilot flying over it and, and contemplating just dropping a bomb on the Dome of the Rock, just blowing it to smithereens. No one knows why, probably out of fear of igniting a holy war with Muslims, Moshe Dayan, they had the Temple Mount, and he handed it back to the Jordanians. And they've been in authority over the Temple Mount to this day, though it sits right in the middle of Jerusalem, and the Jewish people have civic authority, but religious authority belongs to the Muslims. Make no mistake, this city and the location of this singular temple centralized in all the land was and is God's place, belongs to God. There is nowhere else on planet Earth you can say that. Texans like to say it's God's country. Uh-uh, sorry. <laughs> Beautiful, big sky. You can call it big sky country. That's fine. It is not God's, well, that's Montana. Anyway, it's not God's country. <laughs> Israel is God's country. Israel belongs to the Lord. Nothing has changed in 3,000 years since David conquered it. Nothing is, it is still the place that God says, I have my eye on this land. I will watch it all year long. Great is the Lord, Psalm 48, 1, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. God in her palaces has made himself known as a stronghold. You ever wonder why David chose Jerusalem? I mean, Joshua conquered it, left it to the Jebusites. David comes along and says, this will be our capital, and retook it from the Jebusites, and it's a great story. Why? He knew, the man after God's own heart knew that God had chosen Jerusalem. Well, how do we know that? Psalm 68, 16. Why do you look with envy, O mountains with many peaks, at the mountain which God has desired for his abode? Surely the Lord will dwell there forever. Psalm 87, verse 2. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Psalm 132, verse 13. The Lord has chosen Zion. 
He has desired it for his habitation. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. And I don't care how many times you mail that verse to the the United Nations, they're not going to pay attention to it. The Lord has chosen Zion. This belongs to him. And Zechariah 2.8 says, he who touches Jerusalem touches the apple of his eye. God's eye is on the land. So that's what chapter 12 is about. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no graven images of me, and you shall shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. No, rather, you shall establish in the middle of the land the name, the centrality of God's name. Two reasons, and we're done tonight. Some might say, why just one location? That's what Jeroboam said. It'd be a whole lot easier if we had two locations at least. You know, we could have a golden calf up in the north. That, you know, tell Dan, and we could have another golden calf down at, at, at Bethel. Let's, let's do, do a couple of golden calves, and, and, and then people can go where they want. It's more, you know, functional that way. What we need is a lot of denominations covering the globe. Hey, we're, we're just another fellowship. I get it. There are times where I think, can you imagine how awesome it would be if there was just the church in Oak Harbor? We could have the church in Oak Harbor, and we could have the church in Anacortes, because people in Anacortes don't normally like to cross the bridge. I understand that. <laughs> we could have churches by city, and, and I, sometimes I just, I, you know, when I get in my melancholy mood, I just think, it'd be so nice if just all of us as believers got together in one place. And of course, I would have to be the senior pastor, but, but it'd be nice. <laughs> it, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But we're so far beyond that. We're so spread out, and God's using it because God is gracious, Right? He is using the church in all of its form and function and, and messiness. He's still, I, I don't, it's grace. He's using us. Why just one location? Come into the land. It is a spread out distant land, especially if you don't have motorized transportation like they didn't. Why one location? Two reasons. Number one, God wanted a central location for all his people to gather. One place, at least three times a year, and, and he required it. There were the seven feasts, and you could come to every single one, your choice. But all the males in Israel had to come to at least three of them. God required it. They had to go up to Jerusalem for Pesach, Passover, Shavuot, what we call Pentecost, and Sukkot, Feast of Tabernacles. What's cool about those three is those three holidays are central to all the rest. So if you're going up for those, you might as well be there for the other four because they're right at the same time. So God knows what he's doing, but he says three times you got to go up to Jerusalem. Why? This guaranteed that the larger community of Israel would gather and regather again and again. They would have their identity, not in their tribe, but in their God. And as a people together, they would gather in the name of God. My friends, this matters so much to the Father. It matters that we gather. Church is called the ecclesia. Jesus said, he's the first one to use it in the New Testament, Matthew 16, I will build my ecclesia, my assembly of the called. The whole idea of ecclesia is assembly, is gathering together. And I'm just going to say this because this is absolutely Rick's personal opinion. I am low test on the house church thing. If that's all that someone's doing, and I'm not saying that God can't use that. Maybe he's called some to do house churches, but I... Small groups, yes, but we're also called to gather as a congregation. We're called to assemble in the name of the Lord. And Acts chapter 2, verse 46 says, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. Less, it wasn't either or, it was both and. You know, in the temple, they all gathered in the temple in Jerusalem. And then they were, you know, 
at the different houses throughout the week. It was everything to them. They were praising God, having favor with all the people, taking their meals together, sincerity of heart, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Hebrews 10, 23, which was the, honestly, it was the breakout verse for me with reopening this church. And it is the reason why I have said, and we talked about it earlier today, it's the reason why I've said we will remain open. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together. It is not about checking off a box of attendance. The Hebrew pastor says, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Hey, if we are in the last of the last days, if we see the day drawing near, we need each other. We need to be together around the centralized name of Jesus Christ. He is the reason. He's in the center and he says, I want you to gather. To worship, yes. To commune at the tables, yes. To be in the word together and in each other's homes. So, that's one reason why God said, I want you to go to the place of my name. So his people would be brought together. There's a second reason. He wanted a single location, a single location for a person to seek his name, as opposed to a bunch of places. He wanted just one. This is how God works. Now think about this. God doesn't have every river lead to the sea. Why not? Because it would confuse us. It does. If you've seen the coexist bumper sticker, it just keeps getting more and more ornate because you got to keep adding stuff. You got to keep adding rivers to get to the sea. And someone says, well, I'm not, ex I'm not involved in the coexist bumper sticker and I have this symbol for my ideology. Oh, we'll stick that one in there too. One name. And there's no question about how to get to God. One location, no confusion, no comparisons. Well, that temple over there actually is kind of cool because it's up on a hill and, and, you know, it's got a pretty view. No, there's no comparison. There's no competition. One place, one temple, one way to the Father. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He is the centralized name of our faith. And so looking back over chapter 12, you see Moses make this case, verse 5, to establish his name there for his dwelling, and there you shall come. Verse six, he says, there you shall bring your burnt offerings. Verse seven, there also you shall, you and your household shall eat before the Lord. Verse 11, in the place in which the Lord your God will choose for his name to dwell. Verse 14, the place which the Lord chooses in one of your tribes. Verse 18, you shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place which the Lord your God will choose. Verse 21, if the place which the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far, and then down in verse 26, go to the place which the Lord chooses. That's the theme of the whole, that's what Moses is applying of the first three commandments. It is all about the centralized name of God. So again, is his name central in your life, in your decisions, in your actions, in my choices, in my thinking, in my attitudes? Is the name of Jesus central? Genesis 4, 26 to Seth. To him also a son was born. He called his name Enosh. And then men began to be called by the name of the Lord. It's one of the reasons I really like Seth in the Bible. I don't know anything else about him, but I know it was his generation that started to be called, I don't know, Yahwehites, Elohimites, they were called by the name of the Lord. They were known by his name. Acts chapter 11, verse 26, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. You realize we bear the name in the very fact that we're Christians? 
we bear the name Christ. Peter said in 1 Peter 4, 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but it's to glorify God in this name. Is the name central? With that, ask yourself tonight as we conclude, are there any old temples, any old altars, any residual centers of, of paganism or unbelief in your life? You might say, I've, I don't have a pagan bone in my body. I've never been pagan. Are there things you, you, you trust and lean on? It's remarkable how many Christians are into horoscopes. You know what horoscopes are? Pagan. Those, those little crackers you get at the end, you know, the fortune cookies in Chinese restaurants? And now I'm going to really mess you all up because you're going to go break. Oh. <laughs> you read it. Fortune cookies? It's pagan. What, just, and I'm only giving those examples to say there, there are little pagan residuals all over the place in our lives. If we will stop long enough to say, wait a minute, am I putting God in a pagan temple? Am I dragging God into a heathen mindset? Am I saying to Jesus, come along with me while I do this pagan reminiscent thing? Is there anywhere in your life that you go to that might substitute for him or his name or his presence? 1967, Israel had the opportunity to remove the Muslim name from the Temple Mount, and they chose not to, and the Temple Mount has been the source of greatest stress ever since. And I'm not saying, I, I'm not wise enough to know the geopolitical situation or what would have happened if Moshe Dayan had blown up the Dome of the Rock and, and Israel had held the Temple Mount. I don't know if it would have caused an uprising and a furor among the Muslims, perhaps. I don't know. That's not the point. The point is they didn't get rid of the pagan element and it has dogged them for 75 years. And that's what happens in our lives. Be established in, by, and on the name of Jesus, and you know what you'll have? Shiloh, rest. Jerusalem, peace. If you'll trust in the name. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Mm -hmm.